You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart. This week, stories of people finding their community. Up first, Danny shares their experience of gender exploration and finding support and safety at JETS, a youth arts organization in Bandura. And a heads up, this story has mention of gender dysphoria. I suppose I started thinking about my gender from when, like, when I was younger, but all that kind of looked like was more people just thinking, like, I'm a tomboy, I don't like particularly feminine things, and it wasn't until I got to the end of high school where I started finding the language and the words to kind of explain that it's just more than just being into more masculine things or not being particularly feminine as people would expect me to be. I realised it was more than just simply having a different expression. When I started seeing these YouTube videos pop up that were like other trans people explaining their own sort of experience and I remember thinking like that is exactly what I would explain it as but I didn't know how to and completely relating to that and thinking of my gender and realising how much I didn't feel female in my brain just did not compute. I'd never heard the word trans before growing up and so Somehow I came across these YouTube videos of people like explaining the word trans and non-binary and all these different things that I just related so completely to. And that was when I sort of seriously started exploring that for myself. After I kind of started exploring these things more seriously, I ended up starting coming to jets, particularly rainbow space, and finding other people that had similar experiences to me, were the same age as me, and it had this really open and safe place to kind of just explore that for myself and not feel like people are going to try and invalidate that or reject it or tell me that I'm wrong. I originally started straight out of high school in nursing and that wasn't for me, but throughout that process and then starting realising that I was really more into youth work was kind of like happening at the same time that I was trying to discover my identity and I kind of discovered that I wanted to help create or be that safe place for other young people trying to discover theirs. It was after I had left high school that I was able to experiment with different pronouns, which I only exclusively used at JETS to start with. And then as I became more confident in that and more sure that I was able to sort of start using that. In high school, they had not even changed the uniform dress code to allow for people to wear what they felt most comfortable in. It was very gendered and separated, which was extremely uncomfortable say I wanted to wear like shorts and pants more but because I was a female at that point I was not allowed and 
exclusively dresses and skirts or pants that were different. They tried to like feminize them. So I didn't really feel comfortable. I knew I wanted to wear a different uniform, but the school didn't really allow that. So between that and other people really putting the pressure to be more feminine as I like grew up being a teenager, I sort of gave into that pretty much all through high school and just wore dresses, tried to wear makeup and like let my hair be long. I hated it, but it was kind of making everyone else comfortable and happy and trying not to rock the boat. There weren't really any openly trans or gender diverse people in high school when I was there until I was almost finished year 12. And that was the time when they had just started having what they called the standout group, which was for LGBTQ plus students. But it was very, very new. And a lot of them were quite a bit younger than me, which was kind of weird because I felt like I should be more of a role model yet they were so much further along in their journey than maybe I was. I feel like prior to coming out, I had a lot of coming out to myself first. So when I'd kind of accepted and like was more sure in this is who I am, I was supported to go and get my first haircut, which was way more impactful than I ever thought something as simple as a haircut could be. My hair was so long and so much a part of how people saw me as female and I would often just use it to kind of hide behind. I hated it. I didn't really care about it. And then I got that haircut and I was like so overcome with emotion that it was like this is so for me tied in with how I express my own gender. And then from then I started more and more changing up my wardrobe expressing myself in a more androgynous or masculine way as I felt more comfortable. And then I sort of tested the waters by coming out to a few people that I knew were safe. So I had one or two friends that were openly queer and some of them surprised me by literally being like, yeah, we kind of already guessed that, <laughs> which was surprising to me because I didn't even really know it for myself for such a long time and I didn't think it was that obvious. I was like really nervous to come out to people that had been in my life for a long time. I was using they them pronouns in like exclusively queer spaces at Jets. It was like more of a minority of situations for me at that point and then I changed my name but that became complicated because I was trying to keep track of to who I was out to or not. And then once I had become very solid, it was like way too stressful to try and keep it from certain people and like what if they found out. So once I had moved out of my family situation, I felt more of a, like a safer distance from it that if something bad happened, then I wouldn't be kind of stuck in that. So in October 2020, I came out over text to my family members. And then about a week later on National Coming Out Day, I made like a big Facebook post, changed my name. And so it became a minority of spaces that I was out 
to a majority, which was insane to me. Initially, it was a lot of pretty accepting, like, positive responses to my post and my messages, especially on Facebook. It was incredibly overwhelming as there were a lot more people that were quite accepting of it and encouraging and supportive. In my family, for the most part, there was a bit of an adjustment period because for the first 21 years of my life, I was known as one name and seen in some way. And then now they've had to adjust that. But for the, the most part, most of them have been pretty good with the exception of one or two who even now still kind of think it's a phase or like I was disrespectful in changing my name or haven't really changed their language. Consistently either dead naming me or avoiding using my current name and just very feminine terms when referring to me. For some people, the change can be hard, or if they don't understand it, then they're not gonna, which is kind of why I hope awareness and representation can hopefully normalize the conversations a bit more and help people understand it. There definitely has been an improvement in media representation and having transgender issues brought to the forefront. There's still definitely a lot of things that need addressing or improvement or change. But even just a whole bunch of celebrities in the spotlight coming out as trans or gender diverse has really sort of helped people understand like how to use they them pronouns more or that there's more than like one way to be trans and normalizing the different experiences that people have rather than kind of just the binary trans experience, which was kind of what was more what people thought of when they heard the word transgender. December last year, I first started going on hormones and I was surprised at how much more like myself I feel in that because I was so on the fence. I had all these people telling me that you're going to regret it. It's not reversible. It's like such a big decision, you need to think about it. So I was so nervous doing it. Those voices got in my head being like, what if this is just something that I made up or, which obviously it isn't, but particularly having things like my voice change and coming across not quite so much as female has been really affirming and exciting process. Legally changing my name, also exciting, incredibly stressful because they don't make it easy. There's a lot of paperwork and things people have to sign and waiting and applications. And then once you get the birth certificate changed, then you have to change everywhere else individually. Getting to certain places and realising you haven't legally changed your name there and people getting confused and maybe mistakenly dead naming you. Now I'm at the point where pretty much with the exception of one or two places having legally changed my name nearly everywhere it's become a lot less of the dead naming unless people knew me before which has been nice <laughs> on one part i can see it from their point of view because it's an accident like 
maybe they don't know. But if they do it purposely, or even when it does happen, it just feels like kind of like a slap in the face. It just affirms that I did the right thing and I am who I am and that is not me. Whilst it was a very vulnerable and exposing and challenging process, I definitely wouldn't change it because it's been very freeing and just having that room for exploration and being able to express myself way more freely and feel like I'm more myself than I ever was. Another more challenging part or the things that I think the system needs to work on is just access, not just normalising trans and gender diverse experiences and specific services for those people because it's very under-resourced. But things like gender-affirming treatment, there's extremely long waiting list to even get hormones, let alone things like binders or surgery. Particularly for myself, wanting to get top surgery as part of like the last big chunk of my medical transition and the fact that the government count it as elective surgery, therefore not covered by Medicare, making people either have to wait many, many years to save up or spend all of their money because it's upwards of eight grand really, really plays on trans people's like mental health, worsens their gender dysphoria and just makes that already difficult experience that much more difficult. That story was produced by Duncan Stephen, with sound design by Persephone Waxman. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart. All The Best is a great place to learn the art of audio storytelling. Never made a story before? No problem. No experience is required. If you'd like to make a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com. Rosie used to feel out of place when she visited her family in China, but then she found her tribe. In June 1989, Chinese university students demanding greater freedoms had been occupying Tiananmen Square for months. Then the People's Liberation Army was sent in shooting. It's not known how many were killed. We really didn't know where to go. Like All my parents wanted to do was get out of China. It was just literally going with the wind. It was total chaos, total destruction. We picked up a woman with a bullet in the head and took her to the nearby children's hospital into a scene of near mayhem. It was very simple dreams, like freedom. Casualties were arriving every few seconds. Happiness. On bikes, rickshaws, park benches carried in. Equality. The young man in front of me fell dead. I fell over him. Those sentiments were completely and successfully stamped out by the government. Ambulances screamed up to the troop line and were turned away. They couldn't get to the square. Two ambulance drivers were shot. Many students lost their lives and it's a part of history that's been forgotten. It's sort of like a selective amnesia and the government justifies it saying that it was for a greater good. 
And whether that's true or not, it's not up to me to, to say, I guess. When I came to Australia, I just remember everyone was very accepting and accommodating. They were just very lucky. My parents opened up a takeaway shop and worked day and night, seven days, no weekends, just to be able to send me and my sister to good schools. So imagine like going to primary school in the Northern Beaches in Manly, where it's like super relaxed, super easy. The teachers are really nice and they put stickers in your workbook. Wherever the wind blows. And then when I was 11, I got sent back to China for one year, boarding school as well. And I didn't speak Chinese and two education systems that couldn't be more different. It was very exam-based, and if you fail your exam, you have to stand in front of the classroom and the teacher will whack you on the head and tell you to hang your head in shame. I just remember just going with the flow and thinking how bizarre um, everything was. So sleeping in bunk beds and having group showers. You don't have your own shower cubicle and you eat all together. You do everything together collectively. You don't have a personal space. And I just remember, you know, the food comes out in a bucket and you can't go up with your bowls and the teacher will, you know, scoop up some food and put in your bowl. Morning routines, we'd wake up at like 6.30 and we'd all leave our dormitories together, put on our red scarves, flag will go up and then we salute the flag and then we'd, you know, run in military style around the block, like an exercise drill. In my 20s, I'd go back to visit China once a year, visit my grandmother and my uncles and aunties and my cousins. And when, when I go back, they live in a big city, Shanghai, And in Shanghai, you feel very much like an outsider because then everyone speaks Shanghainese, which is a dialect of Mandarin. So it's even harder to understand what people are saying. So you go out and you don't understand what your relatives are saying. I don't have anything in common with my cousins so much. So you just feel like there's nothing much to do when you go back to China. It's just visiting relatives and going to family events and listening to your auntie sing karaoke. I mean, I see my Western friends and they have so much in common with their parents because they'd have parents and grandparents who grew up in the same area, who shared same musical tastes. Uh, like the same movies, eat the same food. And China's just changed so much in the last 50 years. And the generation gap between each generation is so big that I guess it's a bit alienating, but um, you know your relatives love you and they'll do anything for you. It's just when you sit down at a dinner table, there's not a lot of common conversation topics. Every family visit was just 
like, okay, when can I go back to Australia now? You know, you're counting down the days. You don't feel anywhere where you feel a sense of belonging. So it got to a point where I tried to teach myself Chinese and Chinese history, just so when I talk to my grandmother, I can understand. I think it was 2014, a colleague of mine at work, Lizzie, she brought in this book by David O'Dell called Inseparable, The Memoirs of an American and the Story of Chinese Punk Rock. What is that? And I started flipping through the pages and you see images of young people playing music in dingy underground bars, Chinese youth with his head shaven, middle finger up, spiky collar necklace, shirts off and screaming and expressing themselves. This type of imagery is very normal coming out of America, but I've never seen, you know, Chinese youths dressing like this. It's like opposite of everything I thought China was. And I was like, wow, where are, where are these people hiding? You know, how do I find them? So I just went through the book and highlighted every venue that was mentioned. And when I went back to China, like I just went to all the places that was mentioned in this book. And I started meeting like-minded Chinese youths from mainland China. I didn't know what punk or rock was, actually. I went to an all-girls school in Mossman. So you can imagine the music taste I grew up with. Uh, I was only exposed to Spice Girls, Backstreet Boys. That was all I knew. (laughs) During the Cultural Revolution, all Western music was banned. People had to burn their violins and their records. The only music people were allowed to listen to was revolutionary ballets and political music. And so coming out of the Cultural Revolution, their minds were like blank slates. You know, they never heard rock before. Mixtapes totally blew open the minds of the Chinese youth there. These mixtapes were like little missionaries or like little ambassadors that carried this you know, amazing cargo of music from the outside world. And the lyrics for Message in a Bottle really resonated with that first generation of Chinese youths. Because the lyrics are all about feeling isolated and setting SOSs out to the world. And that's exactly how that generation felt coming out of the Cultural Revolution. Then I started backpacking around China. I got addicted. I wanted to go to different cities and go to live music gigs there.
yeah, that's when I first felt, oh, I feel a sense of belonging with, with these kids. I found my tribe, yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying like, um, I know it might sound a bit pretentious, like, oh, I found Chinese kids who smoked weed and played music and I found my tribe. But it was just very different from the limited exposure to this underground culture that I had. I only ever been exposed to mainstream Chinese culture through my visits with my family to relatives. Yeah, I could talk about social issues and we could talk about political matters and we could criticize the government and have just to have a more critical conversation. For me, it's just made me more at ease with my own personal identity, I guess, with my cultural identity. So I found a tribe of um, youths from mainland China that I can connect with. So just from traveling in China, I saw that there's a lot of diversity and there's a lot of underground culture and movements and diverse attitudes. But it's harder to find because it's not sanctioned by the government. Now I love going back to China because last time I went, I stayed for two plus months because I know where to go to get away from you know this very mainstream, politically sanctioned mentality that absolutely permeates the big cities like Beijing and Shanghai. And I know where to go to get away from that. I just have to go to a gig and... Try to get it opened up. Oh, maybe this one. Then you feel, yeah, you belong. Yeah. <laughs> oh, here we go. This song connects me to my parents' generation. And it connects me to that generation that had this naive, innocent desire and hope for the future. So this song just really captures a period of time in China when people were allowed to have dreams and protest en masse. So to me, that's the more, more authentic China. That story was produced by Mike Williams. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with Sin and 3 R on Murundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarong lands and 8 C on Arunda and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun. Emma Pham is our social media producer and Lydia Yosefova is our community and events coordinator. This episode was mixed and compiled by Johnny Janks. Shiningberg composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at CBF. .org.au You can find more episodes by searching for all the best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.